Hi there, everybody. My name is Lars Nilsson. I'm here to tell you a little bit about the movie that you're now watching. I hope you've watched it already and are now tuning in for the commentary. Um, but it is uh, known variously by a couple of titles. Uh, the made-for-TV title that you may have heard it referred to is Girls of the White Orchid. And then the title that you're going to see on screen right now is Death Ride to Osaka. And then the story of why this nudity and violence-filled version of a made-for-TV movie exists at all really takes us into the whole economy of how entertainment worked at this point in the 1980s. Um, this film, in its uh, Girls of the White Orchid version, premiered on Monday, November 28, 1983 on NBC, uh, and it was made by Hill Mandelker Productions. Uh, and directed, by, of course, by Jonathan Kaplan. Um, now, uh, Hillman Delker had made a number of other made-for-TV movies, including Freedom, which is also going to come out on a, a Blu-ray around this time, uh, and then High School USA, which I can recall playing endlessly, uh, being rerun again and again and again uh, in, in syndication. You know, it played at four in the afternoon or whatever. Uh, and, and they made many, many other er, films. Um, Len Hill, who was the head of the company, uh, the co-head of the company, had been the lead dog of ABC's made-for-TV films unit, so he really had an idea about what the market needed. And he was very opinionated about the way uh, to make TV made-for-TV movies. Um, both at ABC and then later on when he was an independent producer, such as in this case, look at this band, by the way, um, he, he really wanted titillating stuff uh, for his made-for-TV movies. He wanted things that uh, were getting, people were really going to talk about, um, that was really going to improve the rerun business, the, the whole, like, uh, can you believe you saw that? Um, he also wanted films with female appeal. He wanted to, to appeal to female audiences because, um, well, as you, as you may note from the fact that this played on Monday night, uh, think about what else was playing on Monday night, which is Monday Night Football, which is a huge juggernaut, TV juggernaut, still is. Uh, and you could counter-program against that with a, a film with uh, female appeal. There's Angelian, amazing hair. Um, and and he wanted rising stars, and that was another thing Len Hell really wanted in his made-for-TV movies. And you see it a lot. You see it in High School USA, which I mentioned earlier, in that it had uh, Michael J. Fox, who... Uh, Lynn Hill really felt was going to be a rising star, apparently, and of course he was, uh, and that's a big reason why uh, High School USA was licensed to play all those syndicated shows, was because it had a, a big movie star in it, Michael J. Fox. I, I, I really think Lynn Hill was was thinking of that in his in his films, uh, and, and looking to try to find people whose career was going to be um, was really going to grow, uh, was really going to go places, so that you know years from now. You know, somebody would want to see a, in this case, a Jennifer Jason Lee movie, which is a, probably a big reason why you bought this Blu-ray, is because you want to see a Jennifer Jason Lee movie, because um, you're interested in her career, because obviously she's a super talent, and that's what Len Hill really wanted. Um, he knew that that would lead to, to more demand to watch these films in the future. The reason we even had made-for-TV movies is interesting. Uh, it's interesting to me, anyway. I hope it's interesting to you, because uh, I'm going to talk about it. Um, obviously, movies have played on TV as far back as there was the technical capacity to play them there. 
um, Hollywood studios, as well as independent producers, including Quota Quickie producers and the Pine Thomases and so forth of the world. Um, they had been licensing their old titles to TV for decades. In fact, you've probably heard the phrase the Late Late Show or the Million Dollar Movie. Those were time slots that were used for showing um, uh, old movies on TV. Uh, they had been licensed by, by the producers of those films or sometimes uh, the studios were the producers and they had licensed those. Uh, and it was built into the bottom line, really, for films produced um, in the 1960s at least, the late 50s, uh, that there would probably be a TV sale. And that was part of the budget, that, that they would plan on getting a million or a million or two bucks uh, back from licensing that for TV, uh, either syndication or network showings. But by the 1970s, there were fewer movies being produced, uh, and often those movies didn't translate too well to TV. You'd have to make a lot of cuts. If you can just uh, imagine uh, The Exorcist in a TV cut, what you'd actually get out, out of there, it would hardly be worth it. Um, also, that big backlog of films going back decades and decades had a real problem. Uh, not enough color movies. There was too much black and white in the mix there, um, which, of course, charms all of us, the black and white image, uh, but it really ran counter to the TV manufacturers' goals of selling a lot of color TVs. And sometimes those TV manufacturers were, in fact, the same people that ran the networks and produced the content. So, so made-for-TV movies... Uh, came about and uh, at this point made for TV movies had been chugging right along and they were immensely popular um, And they really had their own sort of economy of production, which I'm going to get into a little bit So the wonderful Ann Jillian um, Was not really a movie star though. She had done films But she must have had a great Q rating um, that measure whether or not a star was liked by the public because she did a a lot of TV, made-for-TV movies, uh, variety, etc. She had been a child actress in films, uh, most memorably in the film Gypsy, which we'll reference coincidentally in a few minutes in this commentary. Um, and then she, uh, she, she kind of had her little fits and starts, and then she took to the stage, uh, both in touring productions and on Broadway. She's an excellent dancer, as you'll see in a minute, uh, and, and a singer. Um, and she did uh, Sugar Babies with uh, Mickey Rooney and others um, and kind of began having a great sort of stage career. Um, she finally got a hit sitcom in the mid 80s called It's a Living and she really broke out and became a name star um, to, to a lot of people. Um, but unfortunately it happened that while she was making It's a Living she came down with breast cancer um, and she had to quit the show um, she beat the cancer, which is great. She had a double mastectomy. It was very famous. Um, I'm sure it was very helpful. The publicity and the visibility of her struggle probably helped a lot of women uh, to go and get mammograms and to detect a lot of breast cancer, which was wonderful. Um, and she beat the cancer, as I said, and she later starred in a made-for-TV movie called The Angelian Story. Which is, uh, which is amazing for someone who made made-for-TV movies to actually star in a made-for-TV movie of your own story. Uh, and I'm happy to report that she is still alive. So here we're going to be introduced to the, the star of our movie, Jennifer Jason Leigh. Now, 
Again, if you're watching this movie, you probably already know who she is, and you know her decades of fine work. But kind of consider where she was uh, at the time she made this movie. Um, she was born in 1962. Her dad was the actor Vic Morrow, and her mom was the screenwriter Barbara Turner. Her parents divorced when she was quite young, and her mom married the very prolific TV director Riza Badai. Um, by this time in her career, Jennifer Jason Lee had done a number of TV shows, uh, made-for-TV movies, bit parts in big movies, uh, one part in a really good movie called Eyes of a Stranger. Um, and one of her TV movies was called The Best Little Girl in the World, where she played an anorexic... Uh, there's Tom Allard. I'm going to get back to talking about him in a moment, but I'll just point out that that's Tom Allard, and you will hear who he is in just a minute. Um, in The Best Little Girl in the World, she played an anorexic teenager, and she had to drop 20 or so pounds. And you can see how slender she is here, so that's a big drop. Um, and she had also done... Uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which is a big movie, big hit, uh, made a lot of stars. A lot of stars came out of that film. Um, and it was, uh, her career was really going places at this time. On the other hand, uh, she was dealing with a major tragedy in her life as well, because during the course of the making of the 1982 film, Twilight Zone, the movie, her father, Vic Morrow, was killed uh, in a helicopter accident. So this was a, a really um, a time of major ups and downs for this young actress. Uh, and she was bringing a lot to her work. She was really, according to Jonathan Kaplan, trying to work a whole lot so that she uh, was, it was almost like she was sort of repressing um, some, some of what she was dealing with and, and just by working, 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 working. So this is one of those uh, films that she did when she was just trying to work, work, work. Um, one other aspect of this film, and the reason that she really said yes to doing this, because as I mentioned, her career was going places and she kind of didn't need to do stuff like this anymore, probably. She probably could have held out for bigger roles. Um, but, but one thing that this movie offered her was a chance to sing. And that's going to come up again in Jennifer Jason Lee's the it, Jennifer Jason Lee's career is her uh, eagerness to sing. And there's a movie called Georgia, um, which is written by her mom and stars her best friend, almost like her sister, Mira Winningham, uh, where she is going to uh, sing in that movie as well, um, to much different effect. Um, there's a scene that's going to come up in a few minutes where she is going to sing one of her songs that she wrote, um, and it really has a, a sort of heartbreaking quality. Um, it, it is sung live on set. Look at the look at the vulnerability that she's bringing here. Look at look at how much you're uh, already just on her emotional wavelength. But she's going to come in here and she's going to play and she's going to sing. Uh, and generally what is done in a scene like this is uh, a recording is made, a pre-record is done, and then uh, the actor goes along to the pre-record and lip syncs. Um, because you can get your best take that way. Uh, a, a lot of the sort of uh, multiple takes that you might have to get to, to sing it well are, are done ahead of time. And in this case, um, that was done, but then largely it is combined with her singing on set. And I said earlier I was going to reference the film Gypsy with Natalie Wood and Ann Gillian. Um, 
but but the reason why I want to reference that is because there's a very similar scene in that film where Natalie Wood sings a song, um, and she's not a very good singer, and she doesn't have a very strong voice, but it really does, um, in that case, provide a, a look into her vulnerability, a look into where she is. Um, now, as the song unfolds, we see uh, her boyfriend, who's far, far away, um, and we see that they're thinking about each other, and um, we sort of set up the kind of emotional connection through the song, which is a very nice little touch there. Incidentally, the guy who plays Jennifer Jason Lee's boyfriend in this is Thomas Bird, who had done a lot of TV and done a few movies, but by far the biggest role that he'd had in a film was in Twilight Zone the movie in the same uh, segment uh, in which Vic Morrow was killed. So that's an odd, uh, sort of morbid little note about the film. Now a little bit about Jonathan Kaplan, the director of this film. Um, Jonathan Kaplan had, uh, uh, well, he grew up as the son of uh, Saul Kaplan, who was a uh, film composer who was uh, unfortunately blacklisted during that whole period of ugliness. Uh, and his mom was the sister of actor Van Heflin. So Van Heflin, uh, the Hollywood actor, the excellent actor Van Heflin, uh, was Jonathan Kaplan's uncle. And Kaplan kind of had the bug from an early age and uh, was a child actor on the stage. And uh, eventually uh, went to film school, uh, went to NYU film school, studied with Martin Scorsese. Yeah, Kaplan sort of got his start making feature films uh, working for Roger and Julie Corman, who had started New World Pictures and it had incredible success with a film called The Student Nurses and they wanted him to go in and make a, mo a movie very similar to Student Nurses, the Stephanie Rothman movie uh, about uh, student teachers and he went and did that, brought it in on time, on budget, all that important stuff. Uh, was proficient, a very proficient director uh, even then, and just kept kind of getting more gigs. I uh, got some pretty wonderful gigs uh, making films, uh, not only with, for New World, but he, he kind of jumped to the studios and he made um, Truck Turner, uh, a wonderful black exploitation film with Isaac Hayes. It's just absolutely terrific. Um, and then an interesting thing happened. He had such success with Truck Turner that... Uh, he ended up getting a job making a movie called White Line Fever, which is about trucks, uh, because he was presumed to have a lot of experience making these truck movies. So we, this is very important here. We've got our panel of heavies. Uh, Sunteko is the godfather, seated behind the big desk. You've got Mako, who's the guy in the sort of Hawaiian shirt. And then you've got Richard Narita, who is has a special relationship with the Godfather, which I don't know why I'm bothering to try not to spoil. Uh, but these guys are going to be very important later, and there's a pretty funny story about what they did. But uh, back to Kaplan. Jonathan Kaplan was really too good a director to have landed uh, in the world of made-for-TV movies. Uh, he really was, and it's just it just kind of goes to show what a weird business it is. He had made a couple of made-for-TV movies, and he, of course, he had made the cheap, you know, New World Pictures movies, and then the studio films, which were not exactly, you know, top of the line, you know, uh, zillion-dollar movies. But uh, the reason he kind of ended up in this gutter, making these cheap films again, was because he had made a film that was really close to his heart, and it's really close to the heart of everyone else I know who loves it. I number myself among those folks. 
uh, a movie called Over the Edge, and it's um, it's really one of the great American movies. It's one of the great American movies about rebellion. It's uh, it's one of the great sort of punk movies, even though paradoxically there's no punk music in it. Um, and it's filmed near Littleton, Colorado, which is another uh, very interesting sort of macabre detail about it. But Over the Edge was uh, not a hit. Um, and it was kind of one of those movies that was so not a hit uh, that it becomes sort of a memorable sort of repeated title. Like Ishtar was kind of one of those. People talked about Ishtar and how, how what a huge bomb it had been. And unfortunately, Over the Edge had been that kind of movie. Now, of course, uh, art is long, <laughs> life short, and uh, everyone now knows that Over the Edge is one of the great, great, great movies of that era. Um, and if you haven't, if you're watching this, I, I would hope you've seen Over the Edge because you shouldn't really watch Death Ride to Osaka if you have not seen uh, Over the Edge. You should really go check it out. And and Kaplan's other movies too. Um, you should watch uh, Heart Like a Wheel. You should watch Chuck Turner. You should watch White Line Fever. Um, you should watch The Accused. You should watch a lot of his stuff. Um, but but yeah, so so he, he, he really was too big a talent, certainly, uh, to, to be stuck making these. But there, there ended up being kind of a lot of people who were too big a talent for these kinds of movies, and that's kind of sometimes how show business works, is that a smart, canny producer like Len Hill uh, will see an opportunity to kind of grab somebody who... Um, is momentarily down on his heels, uh, and, and uh, use use a really good director like that. And I, I think that uh, I think that Lynn Hill was happy with with this film in every sense, except for the fact that there was not very much Japanese production value. That was kind of um, a little bit beyond uh, what could be done. In fact, uh, the the script I believe had. In addition to, to everything you see here, there were car chases and so forth that were never able to actually. It just was not possible uh, within the constraints of the of the budget that they had, and the fact that the advance work was not done so well. What we're seeing here in the scene in the office is stuff that really happened in real life. I made a point a little bit earlier of pointing out the guy at the newsstand, Tom Allard. You saw him sitting in a wheelchair at the newsstand. A newsstand that incidentally we're going to see in a few minutes and is at a very important corner in Hollywood uh, where uh, Keaton and Lloyd and many of the greats of comedy had uh, film scenes and chase scenes. And in fact, there's a whole movement afoot now to, uh, to have it uh, declared a, a historical location. But Tom Allard uh, was friends with the screenwriters of this film, and what we see happening here had actually happened to his girlfriend, um, where she met up with some folks at a talent agency, which was very close by that uh, that famous corner I just mentioned. Um, and they signed her up. They sent her to Japan with a one-way ticket, uh, and there her passport was held, and she had a very, very difficult time getting back. In fact, um, she got involved, uh, went to the embassy, uh, and they offered to help her, but not to help some of the other women who were in this situation. And it became a, a whole long thing that Allard uh, and his girlfriend at the time, they ended up fighting and crusading and, you know, reaching out to their congressmen and, and so forth and trying trying to get some help for women who are stuck in that predicament there. And it ended up kind of all sort of coming to naught and in fact left some people with the impression that there may have been some um, 
double dealing and maybe some so inside work on the part of some embassy personnel. Here we are back at that, at that newsstand here where she's uh, looking for some Japanese phrase books. This is a wonderful little um, Kaplan-y scene, little montage here, um, sort of putting it all together, not, not explaining every little aspect of it, but kind of letting you sort of catch up with it. Uh, and then signing the contract. And there's a great little part here where he has to sign it again, and he says, that's everything else in Japanese, which is such a shady thing to say. We often hear this or that movie, this or that TV movie is based on a true story, and there's generally large amounts of bullshit uh, involved in that. In this case, there is a lot of truth. She did actually go to Japan. In fact, she went to Osaka, not uh, Tokyo, as happens in this film. Um, and and had exactly the same thing happen, and uh, is uh, back on her feet now. I'm happy to say. GTV has had itself stung a couple of times by girls who went over, partied for the weekend, and then flew home without telling anybody. Well, I'm not going to be any trouble. I knew you wouldn't make an issue out of it. Good afternoon, Ms. Heath. How was your flight? You speak English. UCLA, class of 80. But at the interview, you... I just don't like to say no. I'd rather have Arnold tell the girls who don't make it, you know? By the way, you can call me Shu. Okay. I read in the guidebooks that it's the custom in Japan to bring a small gift. I didn't think you'd pick me up yourself, though. Thank you. Can I open it? Whatever is the custom. It's a money clip. It's beautiful. You're too much. You really oh, are. Oh, I'm glad. I didn't know. I, well, good. <laughs> Now, when you do a, a film that involves a lot of locations in a country where you don't speak the language and where you really have to, um, uh, you're, you have a tight budget and you're trying to get all of this stuff done, you need that advanced location scout to really nail those locations down. Uh, but what ended up happening, uh, as I've heard it, as I've heard the story, I wasn't there, obviously, uh, is that uh, Kaplan and company and a cinematographer and his, his actors got there and none of the uh, preparatory work had been done. So they had to go and get all of their locations set up, um, which is a very difficult task to do. And in, in the, I think they had two days to line up locations. So what you're gonna see is a lot of, um, see a lot of shots of the same alley. You're gonna see a lot of stuff that's actually shot in a Japanese restaurant in the Los Angeles area. You're gonna see um, some some um, really not very enticing looking uh, outdoor telephoto shots of Shinjuku and some other areas. And, and the hotel that they stayed in is a, is a main location in the film. Um, and then also you're going to see um, th throughout the, the course of this, um, the airport, which is going to happen a couple times. You're going to see the airport. Um, and in that case, um, a, a thing happened that, according to Kaplan, ha happened a number of times throughout the shooting, which was that they, they would go and line up. They thought they were lining up the location. 
but in fact what was happening is the people who they were talking to at the locations were not um, were eager to not be rude and tell them no but in fact there was actually absolutely no chance that they were going to shoot in the location where they thought they were going to shoot and so in the airport what happens and you'll see this in the airport scenes is they could put the camera down on one point in film um, and that's fine because you need that one shot you need that one long shot a telephoto shot but then what was happening was that they were not allowed to shoot uh, close-ups or over the shoulders or anything else um, within that space so they had to make that that telephoto shot their master shot uh, which is a little awkward but they pull it off and, and I don't think you'll probably notice that it seems unusual um, but then yeah once they once they got on, on on their sets and they had to do some matching too so they had to fly in uh, a neon sign that said white orchid in Japanese and this was one that they used in their LA restaurant location and they had to uh, use it in a location there in Japan uh, but but whoever had made the neon sign for them especially made the neon sign instead of making a sign that said white orchid it actually said white onion uh, and that was quite funny for some reason to a lot of the people in Japan this this glamorous club was called the uh, the the white onion so uh, all of that sort of sort of plagued it, and, and as I mentioned, some of the stuff like the car chase and all of that kind of stuff that you wanted to, that you'd really love to have uh, on real Japanese streets is not in the picture. And the network freaked out a little bit about it because they they had uh, they had uh, hoped for that when they um, made their deal, when they paid their their portion of the funds for making the movie. So here, playing our sort of dragon lady. Is Carolyn Seymour. Um, now, Carolyn Seymour was probably also. I mentioned that Kaplan was probably a little bit too big a deal for a movie like this, and she was also probably a little too classy for a movie this uh, this sort of vulgar. Um, she was married to Peter Medak, who's a really interesting guy. He made the film The Ruling Class. Uh, she was in that. And she had. Um, She'd come to America and made a lot of uh, different TV shows, a lot of sort of, you know, not enormous budget movies. Um, she had done a, uh, the year before this, she had done a TV movie version of Modesty Blaze, starting, starting Aunt Kel as, as Modesty. Uh, it was directed by uh, Riza Badi uh, again, Jennifer Jason Lee's stepfather. So things uh, things all just kind of uh, flow together here. It's it's interesting how all this parts kind of uh, converge. So I think a super interesting thing about TV TV movies, um, and it's not just TV movies; it's also episodic TV. Is just the way that you have all of these different actors who are, you know, they in themselves are creators. Actors are filmmakers. Uh, and we see actors who we would otherwise just really never see a chance to, to see them working together. And it, it happened a lot on episodic television. It happens a lot in these made-for-TV movies that you just kind of, you have, I mean, here we are, Angelian and Jennifer Jason Lee doing a scene together. What are, you, what are you just really ever going to have that? Because later on, Jennifer Jason Lee, who became, you know, an indie darling and, 
you, you know, was, was in, when she was in big movies, which she was certainly in a number of big movies, they weren't exactly the kind of things that, like, Angelian would do. And then Angelian doing the Angelian story. So you've got people whose careers are just on very different tracks and who are different kinds of actors with different kinds of resources, and you get to see them playing off one another. Obviously, they rehearsed this. They were working off of each other. They are having a good time. They're both really good in different kinds of ways. But TV gives us that, and TV movies give us that. And a lot of times, um, the way TV gives us that is is it gives us scenes between um, up-and-coming actors and actors who are even from like a golden age of Hollywood. And, and allows them to sort of work together and and find uh, commonality. And sometimes that can be really fascinating and provide really interesting dynamics that, even though they're dynamics of the actors, kind of end up becoming dynamics of um, the TV episode or the TV movie itself. Uh, and this is so good. Uh, this uh, Jennifer Jason Lee singing this cheesy song and this cheesy setup and this cheesy bar. Uh, and it's so vulgar, and yet she feels every second of this. We feel for this character because we know that this is exactly uh, how she visualizes what she's going to do, that she's worked out all of her stage moves, that she really, really cares about being a star. And um, she's going for it, and we love her for it. Uh, and we, we, at no point do we sort of lose touch with our... Uh, emotional contact um, with this character because she's she's doing all of these silly moves and silly things. We're on her side. We want her to be a star. We believe she's a star, um, and that's that's coming for Jennifer Jason Lee. You could see a million different performers doing this and getting it all wrong and having the scene not really work um, in the way that it, it really works here. And then to see this wonderful butterfly, this wonderful creature, um, then sort of thrown in, into the meat market of this skeezy nightclub is just horrifying. It's just a, a, a horrendous thing. And again, this is, a, this is sort of a cheesy movie, but Jennifer Jason Leigh is treating it like it's a real movie. Um, and she's giving as much effort into this as she would give in Last Exit to Brooklyn or any Miami Blues or any real movie that she does. Um, she's, she's really feeling it. She's really playing it for all it's worth. And that, that's really what makes it special. And, and you know, I, I'd hate to say it, it wouldn't be so special without um, Jennifer Jason Lee, but it just absolutely wouldn't. I suppose there's others who could have played it, but um, nobody's going to bring exactly this level of vulnerability and exactly this level of um, identification that we, we all sort of feel and is established early in the film um, and that we continue to feel even as she goes and maybe especially as she goes sort of deeper and deeper um, in, into this maelstrom of uh, sleaziness. And so now we're going to start our cross-cutting to build suspense where we go to the boyfriend is in is back in LA and kind of starting to sort of put the pieces together and going and talking to the landlady played it played by Ada Rice Marin and they're gonna try to sort of figure out where did she go where could she be 
um, what she's fallen out of contact, what's going on. And then that's, uh, th there's gonna be a lot of sort of cross-cutting and then we're gonna go from this back to the nightclub. You're gonna see sort of business as usual. There's gonna be a dancer on the stage at the nightclub and all of these things are gonna kind of uh, cross-cut. And the network probably, um, if you were to ask them, would probably, rather than having quite so much sort of cross-cutting and suspense building, would rather have maybe a car chase or a bullet train chase or some kind of something or other. That would kind of uh, uh, prop things up here, but this is what you got. This is kind of what you get with the movie. As I explained, the uh, difficulties that they had with the location scout meant that they had to severely kind of scale back a lot of the stuff that they did in the film. But this is a good point to talk about uh, the way that made-for-TV movies worked economically and the way that um, producers and networks uh, put their pieces together and actually made it happen. So generally what would happen is uh, the networks had their own um, made-for-TV departments and th they would be in charge of the made-for-TV movies and they would work. Um, sometimes they would have their own internal um, made-for-TV production departments um, and but whether they did or not they would work with independent producers as well who would come in and produce the made-for-TV movies. Um, and this, what would happen is the networks would pay a license to those producers, um, and they would pre-license the, the film so that they, the, the producers would know that they had a certain amount that was coming from the network, um, because the network was going to pay for two screenings of the film, generally two screenings of the film. Their initial screening and then a, a repeat at some point down the line. And uh, that happened with this film, and so... And, and of course, that was the, the producer being such a well-known, uh, well-versed uh, network man, understood how it all worked. Um, and you would get your, say, $2 million from the network, and that is kind of how you would get the ball rolling on making a made-for-TV movie. And you could make a uh, $2 million TV movie, probably. Um, but you'd have to make sure that the stars... Uh, lined up, literally the stars lined up for the network. The network was happy with who you'd cast. Um, and and you'd also want to have a product that you could come out of the whole arrangement with uh, and make more money on. Which um, meant that you probably were going to make a made-for-TV movie that was going to be more than just what the network was going to license the, the film for. So you were going to try to put together some other money um, which is called deficit financing. Um, you're going to finance the deficit, the difference between what the network is going to license um, for the film and what you actually want to use as the budget for the film. Um, and that means that you're going to want to find that money to film on some cool locations or to um, uh, add some, some more stars who, who give more name value to the film. Um, in this case, the deficit financing uh, was coming from this film from uh, possibly European distributors, possibly Japanese distributors. This is this is where it becomes a little bit murky, actually, um, that actually paid for um, the creation of a European cut, which meant that they were filming not only um, the made-for-TV version of this, but all this nudity, this wonderful nudity that you're going to see and some of the violence that you're going to see that's just a little too harsh for a made-for-TV movie falls under that uh, that arrangement. So um, that's what happened is, is the production company got a letter of intent from 
a distributor um, in Europe, and they took that additional those additional funds and used it to sort of fluff up the production values of the film. Uh, and in exchange for that, while they were making a made-for-TV movie, they would also have to go and shoot um, these additional scenes, which would make it sort of the theoretically possible to play in a theatrical setting. There's even a funny story that Kaplan says that um, uh, they go to shoot one scene <laughs> with Jennifer Jason Lee, and she immediately rips her top off. And Kaplan says, whoa, 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 this is not the European version. You can leave your top on here. Um, so that they were consistently throughout the movie sort of pivoting to make the European uh, version of the film. A lot of good it did anybody to create the European version of the film because I, I can't really find any evidence of anything of it playing. Uh, posters, lobby cards, trailers, all that kind of stuff. It just seems to, this version sort of exists and it's obviously been licensed and it's been out there. A bunch um, and it, when it came out on video um, but one thing one sort of thing that happens generally if a film plays overseas is all those folks who are supposed to get residuals from it end up getting these checks and you know these are the famous checks that are sometimes uh, a check for three cents or whatever and sometimes they're quite hefty these residuals um, but in a recent interview Kaplan said uh, Jonathan Kaplan the director said that um, he ran into Jennifer Jason Lee and they sort of had a laugh or two about making this this film and he said by the way have you ever gotten a residual check for it and she said no and he's never gotten a residual check for it so God knows whatever uh, happened in, in that department um, it also does not seem to have played a second time uh, and networks generally license these films for for two plays and it did all right um, ratings wise but uh, it does not seem to have uh, played its repeat it certainly did get uh, a good number of complaints which is heartening it's good to know that this got some complaints uh, uh, both from the content and because of uh, the, the sort of racist as aspects of the film, which are certainly present. Jonathan Kaplan was interested in doing this film for a couple of reasons. First of all, there was uh, the opportunity to work with Jennifer Jason Lee. Um, like directors, good directors know good actors and they want to work with them. It's just axiomatic. You. Uh, want to work with all the very best people that you have an opportunity to work with and even at this early stage in her career it was pretty obvious to everybody that Jennifer Jason Lee had it uh, and was a talented star and an actor that you wanted to work with um, and then the other reason that Kaplan wanted to do this is it was a trip to Japan it was a chance to go and work in Japan and, you know if you're constantly just working in the LA area all the time and with with locations that are you know as far flung as Bakersfield then it's probably pretty exciting to get a chance to fly over to Japan and of course there were a lot of problems that ended up happening during that Japan shoot but that was a big thing that um, made him want to be involved in it but the um, content uh, of the film um, which plays on a lot of sort of white slavery tropes um, yellow peril tropes obviously um, was disturbing uh, to Jonathan Kaplan and in fact when he went to go um, begin working with Mako and brought in Mako to play kind of the heavy in the thing and also to help him uh, cast Asian and Asian American actors to appear in the film uh, Kaplan kind of had to you know kind of went hat in hand it's like you know I'm, I'm sorry I'm sorry about you know this aspect of the film I'm you know it's just this is the assignment uh, and Mako said to Kaplan it's fine, I'll get you back, don't worry. 
And then Kaplan sort of filed that away without really quite exactly realizing what it was uh, and what it all meant. Um, and then they were filming... Um, the, the, the first scene that you have with Suntako, Narita, and Mako, uh, where they're all talking in Japanese together, which you saw, you know, uh, 20 minutes ago or so in this film, um, that is a sequence where the Japanese dialogue was sort of um, you know, kind of roughed out more or less, and then the actors led by Mako uh, would kind of put Japanese uh, language to it. And Mako could speak Japanese well, Suntako could speak Japanese, uh, Narita couldn't speak Japanese at all, uh, so he was learning the the part uh, phonetically. But what Suntako and Mako were talking about is, first of all, they do their dialogue, uh, and which is you know the standard sort of character dialogue. All of that is pretty authentic. Um, but then Mako keeps on talking. So Kaplan is sort of like looking at his watch. He knows the take should have ended, but Mako continues to talk. And Sunteko continues to banter, and they go back and forth in Japanese. And what um, Kaplan had not realized <laughs> was that um, uh, they're talking, they're saying things like, can you believe this Fu Manchu bullshit? You know, can you believe <laughs> we're all these years later, we're doing this Charlie Chan nonsense? Uh, and they were just kind of talking back and forth. Uh, and venting and vetting about uh, everything that they were being forced to play, and not only in this film, but because, like, in their careers as actors, that so many of the parts that they were playing as Asians uh, were these kinds of parts in these kinds of projects. So um, it was a chance to sort of vet. They got it on film. I, I did check in with my friend Mark Walko, who speaks Japanese, uh, and Mark said that... Uh, he watched the take, he watched what they're saying in Japanese at the beginning of this film, and it's not, it is not the scene of them sort of venting about all of this. Unfortunately, it would be wonderful if that had made it into the film, but uh, apparently it didn't. They got it in the can, uh, but it did not make uh, the edit of the film, at least this edit. I wonder if it made the other edit of the film, because that would be pretty funny uh, for people to watch it if they were uh, understood Japanese and they, they heard what Mako was saying. So the period that produced this film was pretty much the golden age of the made-for-TV movie. Um, this is the same year as The Day After, which was just an absolute sensation. That was the film about nuclear war. Uh, this, was a, this was a time when you had movies of the week dealing with issues of the week. Uh, it was really affecting the way... Um, that people perceived issues. It was, it was these were sort of taking the place in a lot of ways of um, they they would have their places taken later by reality TV, exploring some real issues. But of course, these were uh, much more fun, in my opinion. It's just sort of um, really amped up melodramas, um, just full of. Um, ridiculous plot turns, full of cool little cliffhanger moments because you knew that when you went to a commercial uh, that you're going to have some uh, great little moment that's going to like lead you up to the, up to and through the commercial, um, up to the hour break of the film. Uh, very very uh, reminiscent of the old serials where you would have a cliffhanger that would make you want to come back, um, and those. Um, the, these films are very notable for having those little moments uh, right before the commercial breaks that, that lead you to tune in. It's it's pretty smoothed out in this version of the film, uh, those little moments. But that was one thing that Kaplan said that he really had to kind of um, 
keep in mind in terms of his pacing of his film is you would want to lead up to those little breaks, um, those little commercial breaks and lead up to something really good and something good coming out of the commercial breaks. It's, it's a factor that you really had to, to take into account. Uh, but this is really, um, you know, made for television films were thriving for another uh, 10, 12 years on network television after this, but and then after that kind of were picked up uh, and became primarily kind of a, a cable uh, phenomenon. And um, one might say that they sort of became a little bit more self-aware um, in terms of like the light, Lifetime movies, they became more self-aware of their sort of kitschiness. Um, one might also say that they were pretty self-aware of their kitschiness already. Um, one made-for-television movie that's really kind of a companion piece to this I alluded to earlier is, is Freedom. And it's also uh, coming out on disc around the same time. Uh, and that was written by Barbara Turner and stars Mira Winningham, who was Jennifer Jason Lee's best friend. And it's based on Jennifer Jason Lee's sister. And it was also a Len Hill, a Hill Mandel Mendelker production. Um, and that's another uh, really special sort of made-for-TV movie. Some, some, of, some of these made-for-TV movies are primarily kind of, you know, sort of so bad it's good, which you sort of put this one under. It's well-made, but it's kind of also... Uh, a disaster um, but uh, freedom is, is kind of one of those TV made for TV movies that is it's like a small sort of independent film that wouldn't have been made otherwise and that's uh, a Barbara Turner uh, Jennifer Jason Lee's mother was a really uh, interesting writer she had done a lot of cool stuff she went to the University of Texas which is a point of pride um, and, and she was um, very busy in working in film, sometimes uh, under a pseudonym, and then also um, she wrote a number of made-for-TV movies. It probably didn't hurt that her husband, uh, Riza Badai, was a really uh, busy uh, episodic TV director um, and kind of kept her in, going in, in those circles. So look in this scene at just how good Jennifer Jason Lee is, is at this. Um, I, I think she's able to really find uh, in her memory banks some um, Time where she felt really uncomfortable uh, in a situation like this because she's really putting it over. I mean, it's impossible not to feel like that she's uh, having a really dark moment of disgust right there. But back to sort of the Barbara Turner, Mayor Winningham axis. Um, the film Georgia, which I'm, I'm hoping that some of you who are watching this have seen, uh, does feature uh, Jennifer Jason Lee singing as well. And in the case of that film, um, some of the criticism that the film came under seemed to me to really miss the point, um, which was that in, in that film, the whole idea is that Jennifer Jason Lee's character is not especially good at singing. Uh, and in fact, it's even like it's a, it's a really painful moment where she sort of takes the microphone and drunkenly sings this whole song. And it's just, it's a wrenching moment. It's a really... Um, she's so deep into the character and she's feeling what the character's feeling and, and there must be some aspect of Jennifer Jason Lee that um, is, is really part of that character. Um, and she's just very, very, very good in, in Georgia and, and that is written by her mother uh, and it stars again, stars her best friend, Mira Winningham. So. That's a really special moment. Um, the, the scene that we're watching right now with Mako um, and Jennifer Jason Lee 
one thing everybody says about Mako is what a wonderfully nice guy he was. There are two things people said about Mako is that he's just such a good actor and he, he is uh, such a nice guy. So uh, that's a scene where uh, that's acting and that's acting from her too and that's method acting from her. Here we go into one of our many stolen shots of the film, uh, stolen exteriors. Uh, this is Jennifer Jason Lee walking up to what appears to be the real um, U.S. Embassy in Tokyo. So she's going to they're going to film this in Tokyo, pan up, and then when we go to the interior, that'll be one of the many, many shots that are filmed on a soundstage someplace in the uh, Los Angeles area. Um, yeah, so the, the stolen shots, the stolen exteriors, we're going to see quite a lot of because, as I say, uh, in order to get some... Um, production value, some location value in the film. They they did do a lot of outdoor shots and we're going to see some really, really egregious stolen shots using a telephoto lens where obviously nobody knows that uh, anybody was out there shooting and um, uh, ho hopefully um, Jennifer Jason Lee in her walking around the fish market and so forth is being inconspicuous enough that people aren't looking around going what's going on. So they're, they're stealing shots, no permits, um, the, I, I imagine that the, um, that the, the they have escaped the long arm of the law on that. Nobody's going to come after them at this point for that. So I mentioned a little bit earlier that NBC was happy with the ratings. Um, and of course, this is a time period when um, there were three networks, soon to be four, um, and most people weren't watching cable. Most people were watching the network. So um, a, a hit movie or a hit broadcast of any sort was really a hit. Um, when this originally aired, uh, it was on NBC, and it was running against, uh, as I mentioned, Monday Night Football on ABC, uh, Cincinnati Bengals versus the Miami Dolphins, uh, and then on CBS, the second part of the Gambler, the Adventure Continues miniseries with Kenny Rogers, um, and uh, the, that Gambler uh, episode was the highest rated um, program on television that entire week. So, um, and I'm sure that the Monday Night Football was pretty high. So, um, Girls of the White Orchid came in out of a total of 65 programs that week as number 23. Which doesn't sound that great, but I'm sure demographically they were pretty happy with it. Um, it, it had a 17.8 rating and a 25 share, uh, which means that one out of every four television sets that were on and tuned in at the time uh, were watching this film. So that's a lot of millions and millions of people that really is it's a ton of people so you can kind of see like when you're getting that kind of return why uh you would make made for television movies such a big part of what you're doing uh and it's a, again it's a one-off you know some of these things like high school usa which you know len hill also produced was a was a, was a possible pilot it didn't get picked up but it was a pilot um but you you still had that opportunity to put uh, a film out there and you didn't have to invest in an entire television series and people would tune in and you had a two-hour runtime that you got out of that one production or in the case of a miniseries which were increasingly popular at this time you know you might have four 
three or four or more um, two-hour run times that you're able to get in and sell ads for uh, and get those kinds of spectacular ratings, which are a thing of the past at this point. But um, it, it was a popular program, and it did, it did quite well um, as far as these things go. And that, uh, that information I got, by the way, is from my friend Amanda Reyes, who is the um, absolute um, monarch of uh, made-for-television movies um, and has written, written the book on it, has written numerous uh, articles and written books and done commentaries, and you can tune in uh, for more commentaries from her. There's the exterior of the hotel where cast and crew stayed at, the limited crew, uh, the limited cast and crew that was in Japan. And this is, uh, with the exception of that Hukusai poster, this is almost certainly a soundstage in the Los Angeles area. And here we have a scene of reflection and a scene of kind of skimpily clad Jennifer Jason Lee. You have to sort of think that this is a mandated scene this is a scene that was that was wanted by the producers and was probably specified in the script and and uh kaplan probably knew this was something he needed to deliver was a scene of his lead uh kind of lounging around in in not much so this is kind of a fun scene um this is um th this often does sort of happen in movies of this sort that you've got another character who is a little bit more hardened to the life who's made these choices. She's not exactly sort of the sacrificial lamb character, the one who's going to sort of pay the price for the sins, but she's she's gonna come in and kind of give her perspective. And what's sort of funny about this speech to me, um, both that it's like a total by the book kind of um, uh, trope, uh, and also that what everything that she's saying is kind of the same things that like American stars would hear about doing, say, commercials um, in Japan, or uh, that you would often have sometimes with um, stars from English-speaking countries would hear about doing maybe Italian, uh, you know, genre movies, like horror movies or other movies that, like, look, nobody's going to see it. It's going to be a head start and nobody cares, and it will never make it to America. No one will ever know. You'll just have the money and the head start. And that's sort of like what she's telling <laughs> Jennifer Jason Lee's character at this point. Jennifer, J the great little retort by Jennifer Jason Lee there too. All right, and now we're back outside. She's walking out of the Imperial Hotel and movie magic. She's gonna be in the Tsujiki area, the fish market. This is a place where she could kind of walk around. They could steal some shots. You do see people sort of turning around saying what's going on. Um, but yeah, so they could walk through the fish market, um, the second unit, although probably first unit <laughs> doing second unit stuff. Here's a classic uh, telephoto shot. This is the kind of shot that you can get without too much difficulty. Steal that shot, just appear to be a, a tourist more or less. And it gives you some local colors. It's kind of what you're lacking. It's like pro probably at first nobody was hoping to get like uh, the environs of the fish market, but that's kind of what you um, end up getting. And it's fine. It gives you sort of a, it, it does sort of, it is kind of effective at getting you sort of a look uh, into the, the world of Japan that she's exploring at the time.
All right, and now we kind of go into like the the boring stuff. This is sort of this boring boyfriend stuff. <laughs> it's like uh, it's sort of like the cops uh, when the cops are. We have to go and watch the cops close in on the bad guys. We're really only interested in the bad guys and in where the action is, but we we sort of have to. Uh, sort of follow along with what the, the cops are doing. This is sort of very much like that. It's we gotta follow along with the boyfriend. Kind of know where all this is going. Uh, nice talent agent office there with the eight by tens on the wall. So the the um, although this really is based on a true story, and it really truly is. And a lot of times when you hear based on a true story, that's total bullshit. But it really is based on a true story. Um, but it's also. Um, it, because it traffics in these sort of yellow peril ideas, uh, these sort of story ideas that um, go back years and years, it really does feel like a work from a much earlier time. Because you're you're dealing, it's a TV movie basically about the yellow peril, which is to say, the sort of uh, European and American panic about people of the East. Um, the worry that they're going to sort of take over, the worry that they're going to sort of uh, storm over the barriers and um, not only uh, take over the, the, the world, but also um, um, impurify the, um, the bloodline, which for some reason... Um, uh, some people seem very concerned about, I guess, for some reason. Um, and, and then you also have this sort of trope of white slavery. This is a really good scene, by the way, between these two. This is a, this is a, in, in a silly movie, this is a pretty nice scene and played well. But you, you, you yeah, you, you white slavery, which the, the whole implication of white slavery is that, I guess, other kinds of slavery are okay. White slavery is of note. So we came up with our own sort of term for it. But, but... Yeah, it's all there in this movie. Um, I think when I first wrote about this movie, I said that it's like a, a, a 30s, you know, pulp novel, you know, updated to the 1980s with 1980s shoulder pads or something like that. And and it really is um, old timey stuff. Sometimes we look at popular entertainment and we can kind of analyze it as sort of like the dreams of our culture. And this kind of thing. This kind of plot had been part of popular entertainment for a long time, going back to Fu Manchu and even before um, Sex Drummer's Fu Manchu stuff. But but at this point, it's really late in the game. There's no excuse for making a movie like this. I, I'm having fun with this as much as the rest of you, but but to, to do a movie that sort of suggests these yellow peril ideas and to have a movie that is about white slavery in 1983 is really late in the game. Um, it's it's hard to justify, um, but but let's let's enjoy it for what it is, for this wonderful Jennifer Jason Lee performance. This is Carolyn Seymour is this... Uh, as this villain, uh, Mako, and so many other sort of wonderful aspects of the story. So even by only playing on television one time, for instance, let's, let's, let's say that repeat never happened, which it appears maybe it didn't, that it never really did repeat. Um, and it also looks like the girl under the title Girls of the White Orchid, it didn't do a whole lot of syndication. It just kind of did its overseas sale, where it may have played in theaters, and it certainly did hit the the VHS market. Um, at which point, 
you know, this film, you know, hitting the VHS market in, say, 1986, you know, had a pretty important star on the cover, and that was probably a pretty good thing for it. But uh, one of the really sort of amazing things about it is that this was seen more than any of Jonathan Kaplan's other stuff. Anything else Jonathan Kaplan had ever lensed before, um, you know, it was dwarfed by this. And, you know, he had done a bunch of movies, so probably all those movies put together, his New World Pictures films, uh, his, his other um, theatrical films, um, uh, Truck Turner and White Line Fever, and on up to Over the Edge in all of these films, which had been seen by, you know, a fair number of people. That number was hugely dwarfed by this. And until Jonathan Kaplan was sort of the, the in-house main director on the show ER um, and, and doing a lot of those, this was probably the thing that more eyeballs saw than anything else. So that's a, that's a pretty amazing thought. Um, and when you go to make a, a made-for-TV movie, you probably know that. You know that when you make it, that this is going to be uh, a, a part of your legacy, like it or not, that even even though uh, it's just only going to be a bunch of weirdos like us who are watching a movie like this uh, so many years after it's made, that there, there, there really are uh, a, a large number of people at the time who see this, and it's going to make kind of an, an impact on you because you saw it, and there, there are scenes in this film that are pretty powerful, actually. Now, in the, in the course of preparing for doing this commentary, I talked to uh, a number of people, including uh, Tom Allard, who's the guy who we saw him at the newsstand, and he's the one who was, was, was the true story of. Um, and his best friend was Jim Beaver, uh, an actor who, at some point, we were going to see, um, or we have seen, and he's just sort of passed by the frame of the camera. Um, uh, in an extra scene. And then also, supposedly somewhere in this film, uh, is the porn actor Harry Reams, who is an extra in a scene, and I've never been able to spot him. He's a pretty identifiable guy with his uh, waxen mustache, uh, but I could not identify him in any scene. But according to Allard, uh, Beaver had shared uh, a, a story from behind the scenes of filming this, and again, I have no idea when this would have been, but uh, some of the extras uh, had mics on because they might have had like a little small um, line or two, um, and when you have a mic on, uh, it's easy to sort of forget it, and you have the mic on, but the sound guy, or sound person, I should say, is standing over there with headphones on and can hear everything that you say. Um, Harry Reams, having done a, a lot of porno films, probably approximately 7,000 porno films, um, uh, was mic'd up because he had a line or two throughout the course of the film, uh, throughout the course of the scene, and he uh, knew that the sound person was listening, so he just kind of kept up this little uh, monologue to the sound guy, and was apparently a pretty funny dude, pretty funny guy, friendly guy, funny guy. Uh, but he, he kept up a, a little uh, monologue about how um, very attractive the sound guy was, and how you know he was looking, <laughs> he was looking the sound guy up and down, and he was saying some you know some uh, pretty off-color stuff about the sound guy, and the sound guy is of course hearing all of this, and because several people are mic'd up, not really sure who's saying it. So that's um, 
That's apocryphal, of course. I've never been able to spot Harry Reams in this film, and I don't know what scene exactly even that would be. Um, so it's it's possibly apocryphal. It's maybe a story that uh, that I was told was during this film. It's maybe during another film. It was definitely during a Jonathan Kaplan film. And then another story that Allard passed on from Jim Beaver was that he had been working on uh, Bad Girls, which is another film that Kaplan had directed. And that's the Western, and that's the... That, that's the Western where Kaplan sort of, uh, <laughs> uh, we worked with a bunch of, you know, Hollywood A or A minus list female stars and also a bunch of horses. And that's the film where memorably Kaplan had said, well, when you work on a film with horses, when you work in a Western, uh, the horses are the stars. If they're not feeling it, you're just not shooting that day. Uh, and that's kind of fun. Uh, to think of like the difficulties that you would have in shooting a western uh, when the when the horses are the stars, but the upshot of that story is that on the set uh, Beaver had um, observed there was an AD or second AD or somebody that was uh, uh, dealing with a bunch of extras and needed one of them uh, to you know move over like and, and yelled out hey you you over there you over there. Uh, and Kaplan had seen this happening, and Kaplan went over, you know, to his AD and said, hey, 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 these people have names. They have names, uh, which is such a nice thing. Uh, I, I, I've not heard a, a single unflattering Jonathan Kaplan story, I have to say, um, and even in my own, um, my own work as a film programmer, I remember I had... Um, you know, I, I had one question that I had about Truck Turner, which I was about to, to show, and this, I mean, this was really probably 15 years ago. I was about to show the film Truck Turner, and I, I just had a question about it, um, something about how it was made, and I got uh, Jonathan Kaplan's email address th through the DGA website, and I sent him an email. And that's the thing I'd done a number of times is send directors emails asking them questions about their films. And generally, you just kind of never hear from them. You don't get a response. Maybe they're just not checking their email. I don't know. But um, I had sent him a question about uh, the film Truck Turner. And I, I, as I recall, I was asking, I said, um, you know, I noticed that you, you had a number of collaborators on the script of Truck Turner, and Oscar Williams is one of them. And I'm wondering, was Oscar Williams brought in to sort of polish the dialogue? Because, you know, it's a film that that really is authentic to African-American idiom uh, in a way that when you hear a lot of uh, black exploitation films, it's like a bunch of guys like saying, hey, you mother. Uh, but Chuck Turner feels very organic, very true. Uh, and Kaplan said, no, in fact, Oscar Williams, who was a black director and black screenwriter, uh, was brought in to punch up action sequences. So um, I, I've always thought about that whenever I watch Truck Turner, which I do fairly frequently, and which I hope you will too if you haven't, uh, because there's some really terrific action sequences in there. And uh, uh, Oscar Williams is apparently a guy who came in and punched up some of those action sequences. And some of them are very sort of uh, Los Angeles area specific. And you'll know what I mean uh, when you see it. Yeah, that's a terrific movie, and you should watch it if you haven't. This is also a great time to honor what we might call the sort of second Corman School. The first uh, Corman School meaning those uh, directors who got their start under Roger Corman when Roger Corman went to go produce movies are were people like uh, you know Coppola and um, Monty Hellman and Jack Hill 
and Stephanie Rothman got her got her start at that point. And it's tons and tons of wonderful filmmakers um, who just kind of had a chance to sort of pitch in, uh, make films, assist on films and whatnot. And that, through sort of Corman's work at AIP or Filmways, was um, was like a very it's it's very sort of well known that that Corman school Bogdanovich is another one is that sort of first Corman school is very important and sort of well recognized and well known I think, but the whole sort of second Corman school the Corman school that came in under New World Pictures um, that's its own um, that's its own kind of little world and I want to recognize some of those folks. Uh, while while they're with us, you know, and I don't just mean like Jonathan Kaplan, who's done just so much wonderful work, and um, uh, Joe Dante, who's done so much wonderful work, and Alan Arkish, uh, but but also like the late Steve Carver and Demi and Paul Bartel, and it was just such a, and John Sayles is a screenwriter, and Julie Corman is a producer. Um, it's, it's so many wonderful people there who. Um, you know, that's a generation. All these generations of folks are getting old, and we've lost some of those folks. And I, I hope we uh, are able to honor them for, for their contributions. Not just their contributions making, you know, exploitation movies, but for everything that, that they did afterwards. For all the sort of tricks of the trade that they learned doing that, uh, and were able to pick up and apply to other projects, maybe that they felt more um, uh, personally uh, excited about and felt like made my more personal contribution with. You know, at this point, you know, a movie made in 1983 is a pretty old movie. And the films that these guys were making, you know, these are, these are uh, movies that were made a long time ago. And um, it may not sort of feel that way because um, when, when you look at a movie like this, it sort of moves. Uh, it can sort of excite people in the same way that were uh, that they were excited about it in, in those days. It doesn't feel like a pokey old movie, but, you know, this at this point... This is an old movie, and it, it is uh, it is now kind of as old as in those days. Uh, looking back at an Edgar Elmer movie, you know, like that was an old movie then. This is kind of our equivalent of looking at sort of those uh, Edgar Elmer bees nowadays. And uh, I think there are just as many sort of lessons to be learned. And we, uh, when we watch an Edgar Elmer movie, we sort of watch it uh, mindful of the context of the time, mindful of his budgets. Uh, mindful of what was demanded of the market and the studios or the, you know, uh, Poverty Row studios. Um, and I think we have to be mindful of that in this case as well. So in a minute we're going to go back to Jennifer Jason Lee in her hotel room and uh, a man is going to burst in, a cop is going to burst in and he's going to uh, say a line. And we know that this was filmed in Los Angeles and we know that this is probably one of the uh, actors of Asian descent who Mako brought to the production because he's not a native Japanese speaker. Uh, he's speaking phonetically. Um, and what this actor who's going to bust in in a few minutes is going to say is he's going to come in and he's going to say, hey, are you doing business in here? That's the scene as written. Uh, but because of the way that he actually accents the words, um, what he's actually going to be saying um, is the Japanese is Japanese for Hey, are you polishing rice in here? And if you didn't have enough to work with, with the yellow peril stuff, with the white slavery stuff, we now have uh, sort of women in prison aspect of this film. 
it really is true in a lot of ways. Uh, and, this, and it may be counterintuitive to say this, but uh, made-for-television movies, and even to some extent episodic TV, are really the heir apparent to a lot of the, the drive-in movies. Because you had so many people that had worked in exploitation slash drive-in movies uh, who were then being tapped um, because of their skills at, you know, delivering cheap movies with the exploitable elements, and they were placed into this world. Uh, th this is a this is such a weird scene, the way this scene is constructed and framed. It's almost like is this a dream sequence, with the lighting in this way? Like it's supposed to be real, but the stylization here, um, you know, which is probably masking some pretty cheap sets. You know, again in Los Angeles, uh, I'm sure, um, is is so unusual, and the sort of cadence and the way this actress speaks is so unusual. This over. The, this shot from the ceiling looking down uh, is so unusual that it really is like a hellscape. This is like a Jigoku uh, scene. And I'm not sure why exactly it's lighted this way other than to sort of like convey the sort of distress and then, you know, possibly also, as I noted, maybe that um, sometimes your best friend when you don't have great sets to work with and you don't have a lot of time or wonderful uh, scenic uh, talent is to use this sort of light stylization uh, to, to lend some visual interest to it. And I suppose it's also true that this is the period where um, MTV was huge. Um, and you see the MTV influence in a lot of made-for-TV movies and a lot of even episodic TV at this time, above and beyond just Miami Vice. But you do see uh, what was sort of called the MTV influence in a lot of these things. And you certainly do have it, I think, in the way that some of the scenes of her singing in the nightclub are shot. But I, I think that that sort of intense um, stylization pops up again in, in some scenes like this, which are sort of arty and aimed to kind of keep the eyeball interested um, in a way that you wouldn't normally see um, in, in a film of this type, or of any type, really. And that uh, sort of MTV-ization uh, of the way the movie's filmed is going to continue uh, very soon. We have some real sort of scuzzy, this looks like a Filipino women in prison movie, honestly, it looks that scuzzy. Uh, they're uh, they're doing a good job making this look a, like a very undesirable place to be for Angeline here, as she has been uh, sent to the, on the death ride to Osaka here. Um, once we go to this nightclub scene, we're going to see another uh, visual influence I think that we saw a lot of during this period, and I don't know if this whole sequence appears in the. Um, made for television girls of the white orchid or if this is all um if all this stuff was filmed specifically for the european version but it's it's a very scuzzy kind of scene that reminds me of flash dance now i don't know if flash dance could have actually been an influence on this it came out the same year uh but this certainly has uh that look of flash dance with the uh, sort of the aerobics clothes and it's but it's a very sort of scuzzy like low-rent flash dance act as would have been done in a really scuzzy uh, Osaka club I guess this is a club what is this exactly is this a nightclub where people paid to get in um, and, and what we have here this is 
what a scene this is. What a feeling. Um, in this scene, we have Angelion is in this club. And this is really sort of the thing where she's sort of paying the cost. And obviously her character, you've seen the movie already, so you know her character is going to end up sort of um, being the sacrificial lamb here who's, who's put forward. And that's a trope that appears in many of these films. Someone who pays for the sins, someone who's not the lead character, but who's a sympathetic character who we like, played by somebody we like who's going to have to die. Because that's just the way that these stories work. So again, we have nudity here. I don't know if a non-nude version of this appeared um, in the made-for-TV version. Somehow I kind of doubt it. It's also possible that this could have been made, uh, that those particular scenes could have been made after the fact and added um, to, to the film. So I'm not quite sure. Nobody's quite sure. Anybody who is there is not talking or doesn't remember. This is some pretty rough stuff too, this, this violence. I'm not quite sure if this uh, could have appeared on the made-for-television version. It might have been just a little bit tough even, uh, even late at night. Um, so producer Len Hill, who did this, um, I should mention I read I read a book along the lines of like how to make money writing made-for-TV movies. Um, and in that book, uh, the author of that was talking about going around and pitching a title pitching a script that he had and trying to sell it to ABC when Lynn Hill was the uh, decision maker there in their made-for-TV section. Uh, and yeah, his his whole story is basically, and he names names, he basically was Lynn Hill just thought it was just too milquetoast a story, it wasn't strong enough, it needed more um, red meat in the story. And it was, you know, it was kind of a sweet story about a about a dad kind of striking out on his own, you know, after having a career for some time. But, but um, yeah, it was not strong enough meat here. We're going to see something really interesting in this scene, and that we're going to see a poster for a film by Nobuhiko Oyabashi, Obayashi, pardon me. Um, and this is the guy, yeah, so we see the poster back there. Uh, Obayashi made Haosu, in case many of you have seen it. My friend Mark Walko spotted this. I never would have spotted this in a million years. Um, it was a film that was made several years before this. We have a whole row of posters on the wall there for Obayashi's film. Nobody's quite sure why. It's, there's no real reason that that would be around. Nobody would be promoting this movie, which was made, I think, four years uh, before this. Um, but there's some thought that possibly in their haste to, to like dress the location to make it look uh, even sort of scuzzier that they went and found these posters and put them up on the wall but the posters do get a lot of exposure you see it again there um, and it's a little bit surprising that we're seeing this uh, poster so much and for uh, cult movie devotees yep there goes Angelion she's paying the cost there paying the price uh, for cult movie devotees it's kind of a, a neat little thing to see and by the way um, Mark Walco, who is the expert on all things uh, Obayashi, uh, was so curious about how that poster had ended up in this that he actually dropped a line to Obayashi's daughter to sort of find out if she had any clue, and of course she had no clue at all. But that's uh, that's the kind of help that you get when you ask Mark Walco uh, for his assistance with the thing. Is you go, uh, he really goes above and beyond. So I appreciate that.
all in all, this film's a real curiosity. It's a real curiosity because we have, you know, a couple of real greats. Uh, we've got Jennifer Jason Lee, you know, at the at a time when she's really sort of beginning to sort of achieve her potential in her career. And then we have Jonathan Kaplan, you know, at a, at a sort of down spot in his career, which I'm so happy to say uh, that, you know, after all this, he kind of got, got back to sort of where he had been and he got back to making films that he really cared about. And Mako <laughs> and Carol Seymour and uh, Leslie Wing and, you know, Sun Tiko and some other just really good people. And, you know, they're going and they're earning a paycheck. Uh, and they have a chance to kind of just make something that sort of um, allows them to maybe find a scene or two that they could do something special with. But then ultimately is a movie that I'm sure everyone involved with this sort of thought like, well, this is kind of more or less going to disappear down the memory hole and nobody will be um, recording an awkward commentary about it um, in whatever, 40 years. So, but, but <laughs> joke's on you, you guys. We're talking about this movie still all these years later. And I, I think it would be wrong uh, if anyone got the impression that we're talking about this movie because it's some kind of masterpiece, some kind of great movie. Um, but what it is is a real sort of place and time. Um, you know, it has become something that we say a lot during this decade. Uh, that you can't do that no more. You can't do that no more. And this is truly one of those movies that um, you can't do anymore. You can't do it uh, in many ways because you wouldn't want to make a movie that depends on these sort of outright racist tropes. And you also, also kind of wouldn't want to do a movie, um, I think, I think most people wouldn't want to do a movie that's this... Um, clearly melodramatic, although I'm not quite sure why, because melodrama has always kind of worked. But it, it is true that melodrama that's, that hits you with such sort of hard edges as this one does is sort of seen as a, an outmoded way to make films. And that part's a little too bad, because I, I think that um, you can make bold, in-your-face melodrama. Everybody knows it's not real. Everybody knows that it's not. This is not um, a realistic situation, despite the fact that it is, you know, based on a true story. But um, it is not necessary to have your film uh, display the contours of realness. And I think, in a lot of ways, made-for-TV movies were kind of this last sort of bastion of making films that that did not uh, feel that they needed to incorporate uh, hyper reality. Uh, w within the course of the film. Of course the irony is is that the films that people think of as realistic or true to life are of course nowhere near uh, true to life or realistic in, in any kind of way. And a film like this just sort of gives us um, you know clear-cut good guys, bad guys um, and, and allows us to sort of um, visit this world. You know, it is true of television and maybe a lot of other popular entertainment that we kind of want to uh, turn our heads off, that there's this sort of ritual nature of watching television. And this is, um, by experiencing this film now and sort of looking at all the ways that it differs from where popular entertainment has gone since then, we can sort of appreciate um, where the ritual, where people were when they would undergo the ritual of watching a, a movie of the week at this point and I, I think that's kind of what makes it really interesting it's a well well enough executed ritual uh, 
TV movie of the week, and it works along those terms still. This scene here with Leslie Wing in the bar, this is such a pulp trope because this is the, uh, we saw her earlier when she was being sort of um, threatened with being shipped to Osaka and she was shipped to Osaka and we see her now as the sort of a, a, a completely fallen woman. We've seen, we've seen the two sort of sacrificial lambs. We've seen uh, Angelian, you know, sort of dying uh, for the sins of everyone else and here we see uh, you know, poor Leslie Wing, and she's just lost she's just to the world. She's just gone. Uh, she is now a fully fallen woman, and this is such a, a, a sort of pulp trope. This is, this is all of this stuff that's, when I say pulp, you know, I don't just mean that it's um, sort of cheesy and sort of familiar. I mean, like, these are real uh, pulp fiction tropes and real uh, ideas that we saw throughout sort of pulp-inspired um, entertainment. And it's it's funny how it's still here. It's, it's um, I would say, even when it's based on a true story, and maybe even especially when it's based on a true story. And what the hell is going on here? This, this Yakuza guard here why is he standing around in a guarding position in the hall with no shirt on i mean i get that we're supposed to see his tattoos but this this makes absolutely zero sense this is completely out of character um it struck me as pretty strange and then my friend mark walco uh <laughs> provided some of the context about japanese culture here uh has told me in fact that this is really truly beyond the pale and bizarre there's no real reason for doing this other than um to show off the tattoos and to show that there's a well an otherness to um and this is a pretty uh, exploitative scene um that's just kind of the way this is this is what was needed for the european cut i suppose uh to kind of go this far the uh, decision to sort of linger over the scene is uh, very uncomfortable. This is um, scenes scenes like this, uh, generally less explicit than this, are um, were, have always been a part of movies. And some people um, have said in the past that uh, a, a rape scene or a uh, you know a, a scene where the the jeopardy of rape is always has always been part of cinema because it combines sex and violence um, evaluate that uh, statement uh, on it on its own merits um, we're about to go back to the nightclub here and once we do I'm reminded of a story um, this is the Shinjuku district by the way and there's a neon sign um, is that neon sign uh, was they made, I think, three of those neon signs, and like two got busted in transit. And then there was one that was perfectly good, and then a stagehand was mounting it, and he dropped it and broke it. Uh, and he went uh, to uh, Kaplan and the producer and said, Hey, I I'm sorry, I dropped the sign. 
this is my fault. I will work extra. You don't have to pay me. I will go and get the money and have a new sign made for you. I'll have the sign repaired or whichever the case may be. Uh, and he was he completely sort of abased himself and, you know, it was clear that what he really needed to get out of the encounter was forgiveness um, and that he had not um, he had not shown the production uh, placed the production in a, a state of dishonor. And, uh, you know, Kaplan hears this guy saying this to the producer and his just jaw is just dropping. Um, I suppose if you worked with enough sort of, you know, um, crew members, that this is not exactly the kind of thing that you're really expecting from a crew, for a crew member to say. But then uh, after the guy had walked away, the producer turns to Kaplan and says, Wow, I like this country. So consider the climactic scenes of this film, which we're now witnessing almost as if they were storyboarded, which, you know, they probably were sort of sketched out because Jonathan Kaplan, you know, worked with classical rigor in terms of the way he made films. But we, we can see as we go from this scene, which is a, this is a pretty well-used set that we've seen again and again, once we start moving to some of the sort of different locations, and by the way, they're putting together locations uh, in some cases in Japan, in some cases in uh, sound stages, some cases on LA backlot locations. But we're, we're getting a sense, even in just the way that he films it, of the character and the character relations here. And this is just classical filmmaking. She's upside down. We can see her there that she's upside down and you know everybody comes out of the frame and she's in jeopardy. These are, are wonderful compositions. That well, we've seen that establishing shot in different variants throughout the course of this film, and I believe that's in a restaurant in Los Angeles. I could be wrong, but I believe that's in a Los Angeles restaurant where um, I, I swear I've seen other uh, movies and television shows filmed. But just in the uh, in the settings where there's a, a lot of sort of gloom and darkness in the room, we pan up to him. He's in, he's the master of the situation. Um, all of that. This is a really sort of classically um, directed film and to, to make sequences like this when you're on such a tiny budget, when you're on such uh, a fast uh, track and you're making a movie that's effectively you know a two and a half million dollar movie where you've you know you've got to pay you know you've got to pay folks for their time, and there's some, there's some actors who are going to demand a decent chunk of that. I love that shot. Uh, love that shot. Um, all, all of this, look at everything that he just kind of put together in that one little shot. Um, I, I love the way that he kind of sort of pieces it all together. Um, and you, you can tell by the tempo and the way that this is working um, that obviously the movie is achieving its sort of climax of action here um, but but I love the way that he told that whole shot that last shot there uh, just in one shot without having to, to cut you know choosing one chooses not to cut one doesn't not cut because uh, it's easier that way but choosing to sort of go through and rehearse the scene so there's no cut involved there I deal with a lot of filmmakers would-be filmmakers uh, and people who are sort of um, young people inspired to want to make movies and a lot of times what's inspired them to want to make movies has been movies that are really 
going to be beyond their reach in their careers. Um, they're, they're just not likely to have a chance to make a Lawrence of Arabia or even like a, I don't know, Fight Club or something or movies that, you know, really have driven them and excite them. Um, but I, I sometimes encourage them to watch movies that are, are, are closer to their means so they can look at it and they can sort of appreciate um, that, yeah, I could do that. I could, I could probably hire actors who are both sort of you know, solid professional actors as well as maybe some up-and-coming actors that I, I've identified. And maybe I could pull off a movie like this on locations and, and studio sets that are manageable. And I think that you can kind of learn maybe even more about watching a film like this than you can from watching Lawrence of Arabia because you're just not going to have, you know, magnetic movie stars like that that you can work with who focus you are able to focus the eye upon you're not going to be able to like go spend so much time in the desert waiting for a mirage to pop up um, but you you really can watch a movie like this or um, you know I, I referred to like Edgar Elmer B's earlier and some of those are enormously inexpensive films and you really can um, watch films like these and see yeah okay I see how I would do that I can see that he had this location for one day and that he used it for that and then he went and changed his actor's outfits and then he reused the location for this again. You can actually sort of like figure out everything. I see how he blocked these shots. I see how he made this happen. So um, we talked a little bit about um, Jennifer Jason Lee's, uh this period in her life. Uh, a period where she was really finding stardom. She had gotten a great part in the film Fast Times at Ridgemont High, really the lead part in that. Um, and then also had dealt with her dad dying in a horrific onset accident, uh, which involved a lot of special effects. And Kaplan said that he really thought that Jennifer Jason Lee was trying to get through this, um, trying to kind of... Um, keep her head down and work and work and work and sort of put it out of her head but it's a pretty traumatic terrible thing that happens to you um that first of all your father dies your father dies uh in an accident before his time um and then it's a, a really pretty horrific accident which i'm not going to go into but if you uh want to read up on it if you don't know about it then uh, possibly read up on it but it's pretty horrific and scarring uh even uh for someone who's not you know the daughter of Vic Morrow that happens to. And this is only maybe a little over a year later, or, or a year and a half or so later maybe, um, at the most. And that, um, you know, that's a pretty scarring experience. But again, according to Kaplan, she's kind of working through it, um, going through uh, all of this and keeping her head down and not really too freaked out um, until you get to this sort of final scene here, this sort of climactic part. So the special effects people all come in, they lock down the set. Um, when you're doing a special effects on a film set, everything's you know quite a bit different than when you're just kind of shooting scenes, dialogue scenes, let's say. Um, and and there's a, a different kind of feeling because the uh, special effects people come in and they're kind of the stars of the show and the special effect is, is the star and that's the star turn that's going on before the cameras that day and that finally is sort of uh, for Jennifer Jason Lee I think what really freaked her out is that it was special effects time even though it's just like you know firing a gun but it but it really is um, 
it's a situation where you've got the safety folks there uh, where, and where everybody's doing that. And that for her, I think, was the moment where she really sort of realized that, hey, this is, you know, th this is the this is the same sort of situation in a way uh, that my father was in when he got killed. So I think that kind of freaked her out. She had to go take a minute, uh, go leave the set. Kaplan gave her as much time as she wanted, and then she uh, dealt with it and came back uh, and took care of it. And all this brings us to the climactic visit to the airport. And one thing you will notice is once we get back to the airport, we see a shot that we're very used to, the telephoto long lens shot inside the airport where they had the, uh, the one little space where the folks in the airport had given them permission to put the camera and they used that camera placement through, throughout. Uh, no, uh, no, no cutting in close-ups here, just kind of using that one sort of long shot. But it's effective enough and frankly it kind of saves time. You know, you probably could have covered this uh, a little bit more, but yeah, this is effective enough and they sort of recede and grow smaller and grow smaller as they drift away. So uh, that's uh, that's our movie. The, the good guys win, as usual. Um, uh, and speaking of good guys and good women, uh, this is a uh, this is sort of a group effort. Uh, John Hertzberg, Jonathan Hertzberg, uh, asked me to do this commentary, uh, and I said, uh, "Sure, I'll do it, and I'll goof around and I'll joke around with somebody else." And he didn't want that; he wanted a, a fact-heavy commentary. So, you've gotten a fact-heavy commentary as fact-heavy as it could possibly be, I think, for a movie this sort of little known. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it was hard to do. Uh, but thanks, of course, to John Hertzberg. Uh, thanks to Jonathan Kaplan, who provided a lot of the information. Thanks to Tom Allard, whose uh, who's, uh, true story and his girlfriend's true story this was based on, who talked to me about this. Uh, thanks to Mark Walco, who helped with so much of the sort of Japanese language stuff and Japanese sort of cultural stuff that I would have missed otherwise. Uh, thanks to Amanda Reyes, who helped me out with the rating stuff and some context about this. Uh, these are all wonderful people, and I'm so grateful. Thank you for listening to me um and ah and so my way through all of this. Thanks so much.